Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. The U.S. Congress has historically been defined by a seniority system that has too frequently rewarded members for the length of their tenures rather than the strength of their ideas. But that's changing as young progressives are getting elected to the House and demanding to be heard. The change is occurring at least in part because some senior members have joined new members enforcing it. They have made the Congressional Progressive Caucus a force for opening up the process and getting newly elected members on key committees and in the thick of essential debates. Congressman Mark Pocan, a Wisconsin Democrat, co-chairs the caucus, and he is our guest this week on Next Left. An openly gay trade unionist with deep skills as an organizer and activist, he has, with co-chair Pramila Jayapal, made the caucus a place where the next wave of progressives are being welcomed and given leadership roles from the start. New members such as Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Deb Holland, and Katie Porter all hold key positions associated with the caucus. Pocan works with them as he does with veteran progressives such as Barbara Lee to advocate an economic and social and racial justice agenda that demands an end to needless wars and a Green New Deal to save the planet. He's an advocate for abolishing ICE, a champion of Middle East peace, and a magician. Congressman Mark Pokan, welcome to Next Left. John, thanks for for inviting me here. It's a pleasure. Usually on this podcast, we talk to people who are relative newcomers to politics. That's not the case with you. You've been involved in politics for a very long time. In fact, as we go into your personal story a little later, we perhaps be able to say from birth. Um, (laughs) But Maybe eight. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But what we're really interested in, or at least to start out and to give people a framework here, is that you are the co-leader of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that of the people we have interviewed so far Mm -hmm. on this podcast, people like Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Ro Khanna, Pramila Jayapal, Deb Holland, they're all Congressional Progressive Caucus, Mm -hmm. not just members, but in many cases in leadership roles. Mm -hmm. And you yourself have only been in Congress for six years. And so it, it seems that the Progressive Caucus is a place where a lot of the kind of rising voices, this, this, if you will, next generation in the Democratic Party and this next voice has concentrated. Tell me a little bit about the caucus and why you think why you think this dynamic has developed with it, where it is the place where so many of these people move sure. up. Yeah, I would even add one other thing. We're also a place for some of the most senior members, the committee chairs. I think we have a dozen committee chairs who are members of the Progressive Caucus. And as you know, that's often done by seniority on committees. So we have some folks who've been around for a very long time, people like Maxine Waters and Jerry Nadler, who've been fighting for the movement. And then we've got a lot of the new folks, especially in the last class, some of the more dynamic folks that have come in, outspoken folks are members of the CPC. And I just think that, you know, especially when you're fairly new to politics, you're out there talking about issues that are a little more cutting edge because you you aren't wedded to something that you've been talking about for 20 or 30 years, but you're out there listening to people and this is what you're hearing from the grassroots and therefore you're coming through the Progressive Caucus uh, and advocating for those issues. So uh, we are a great place to give strength to those folks and we're 40% of the Democratic Caucus, which is a 
big number, which means those ideas instantly get uh, brought to an audience that's a pretty substantive audience that on values uh, likely agree with those members, but it's some of those members that are bringing the newer ideas for the caucus to then take and try to see if we can make into real policy. Let me tell you, let's take a second on foreign policy because I, I think foreign policy is dramatically undercovered mm-hmm. by and large as right. regards what our what our Congress does. And it's out of the Progressive Caucus that you've really been able to put the issue of Yemen on right. on the agenda. Talk to us about that a little yeah. bit. So first, I mean, let me just say, people like Barbara Lee, obviously. Have we been, begin with her. Right. Yes. Some of the most outspoken people working on these issues. But it's been a bit lonely for them. And now they're mentoring a lot of the newer members. So whether it be an issue like Yemen that I would argue most people uh, who work in the Trump administration could not even find within a several hundred miles on a map of where the country is. Uh, but yet, uh, you know, because of U.S. involvement with the Saudi-led coalition, uh, it was the largest humanitarian crisis on the planet. And that should have the attention of the United States Congress. And I, I think by us taking that issue on or trying to stop arms sales to Saudi Arabia uh, or trying to look at some of the other issues that don't always get a lot of attention, really that energy has come from many progressive caucus members. Barbara Lee has always led on trying to get, get a new authorization to go into war. But, you know, it's uh, so many members who've been around for one or two terms that are talking about Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution that says it's up to Congress if we're going to have a war. And you can't allow a president, whether it be Barack Obama or Donald Trump, make that decision without Congress because there's this little funky thing called the Constitution we're supposed to follow. And uh, that's been uh, often some of the newer members who've been at the lead of those issues. And the CPC certainly uh, has been at the lead of those issues. Let me talk about, let's talk about you a little bit. Um, You were one of the first people to mention impeachment on the floor of the House during the Trump presidency. Within (laughs) weeks into it, and you didn't call for impeachment right away, but what you did do is talk about, I think it was the Muslim ban. Yeah. And you said, you know, look, we we have to explore all options in mm-hmm. responding. Well, I mean, I think you know, you've got to do it. You have power, right? You've got power that um, we work and we're proud to work as a progressive caucus with the inside-outside organizations. I wish there was better terminology than we do, but all the different progressive groups from Indivisible and Move On and, and, and many, many, many other groups that are out there. Um, but we've got the voice in Congress. And if we don't use that voice, um, then we're not uh, helping to be a part of that broader progressive movement. And uh, when it comes to someone, I don't care if you're the president or, or a CEO, uh, you're accountable like every other person to follow the law. And when the president did something as, you know, truly evil uh, as saying people of a certain religion aren't allowed in this country just because it fans the the racism and xenophobia that, you know, are, are, seems to mark most of the supporters of this president, uh, that's not acceptable. We're better than that as a country. And long after Donald Trump is gone and we read about all the things he actually did in the White House, uh, we're still going to be that country. And unless we start setting that precedent on a regular basis, no one, a Democrat, Republican or other, is above the law. And we have to hold especially the powerful to those standards because so often they're not held to that standard. And in in that case, you went. I recall the the thing. You came with maps, sort of you know the Ross Perot model, and you started pointing out that the countries where Trump was banning people from were the ones where he didn't have a lot of financial interest, or his family yeah. didn't have a lot of financial interest. You went really, you went to the heart of the thing yeah. at a very early stage. Yeah, but I, again, I think you know so often this happens. You know. We, 
the attention doesn't get, you don't get a lot of attention for doing it early, but once you start cracking that seal, so to speak, uh, it allows other people to then start saying it, even though we all understood it at the time. We knew what he was up to, but whether or not you said it out loud, you know, for some folks that have been around maybe for a very long time, was that the proper political move to do? They wanted to be very calculated and, you know, all people, people have a lot of excuses not to do the right thing. I think sometimes you just need some people to do the right thing and not worry about the consequences. And I've never been one, as you know, to worry too much about consequences because, you know, it's, uh, I've been successful doing what I've done. And I think uh, you're finding, again, a lot of these new members have that same attitude. They come out and they're not afraid of very much. And uh, they're not like they're trying to, you know, retire four decades later in Congress and get a beautiful watch. Uh, they just want to do something. And the way they're doing something is by being uh, in Congress. So I think the more we can just take on those powerful interests and, and speak the truth, and even if it's uncomfortable for people, that's probably even better. And one place where you've done that has been on Israel-Palestine and on the issues related to Israel and Palestine. And you have taken this on as a responsibility, I mm-hmm. think, in many senses. Uh, you've also tried to make some really nuanced arguments, which is hard in Congress. Right. But when the president has gone after newly elected members, uh, particularly Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, you've stood at, at their side and said, what are you doing is wrong. And also, in many ways, suggested that, that this, this simplistic debate yeah. about the Middle East is wrong. Tell us a little about that. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the simplistic debate among the political class is you're either for Israel or you're against Israel, and that's it. And th- that is overly simplistic and also dangerous, I think, to have a view like that. So, you know, I've had a view. I've gone to the region. I like to go and see things, and I make judgments based on seeing and experiencing, and that's how I, I think I learn best. And I've been to Israel, and I've been to uh, Palestine, and I've been there a couple times to the region. And based on my observations, you know, I, I've I've you know, Israel is a great ally of the United States. But I also understand that when you've got a friend who does something maybe that's not in their best interest, which especially under the Netanyahu government of Israel right now, they've been doing plenty that's not, I think, in the country and the people of Israel's best interest, you need to call that out. So um, when the response to a kid throwing a rock at a wall is a bullet, uh, that's an over-response and someone should call that out. Uh, when you have 2 million people in Gaza, essentially in an open-air prison, uh, 1.1 million of which are on food assistance, 95% of the water isn't drinkable, you have a festering pot that could explode at any point, and that's not in anyone's best interest, United States, Israel, or Palestine's. When you have a road that has a giant wall in the middle of it, and Israelis drive on one side and Palestinians on the other side, uh, that looks like too many things we've seen in history in other countries that hasn't been good for people having uh, human rights. And I think, you know, to call those things out is also the responsibility. But you're right, having nuanced conversations aren't always what happens in Washington, but that's never again stopped me from at least trying to be who I am and have those conversations because I have I do think it's opened up the ability for some other members now to maybe speak out a little more than they did previously. So we don't have to have just Rashida and Ilhan being attacked by the president for saying something because a lot of us have some similar beliefs and we think it's fair to call out someone who's making mistakes. And when the president intervened or pressured the Israelis not to let Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib 
travel mm-hmm. on an official visit. You obviously spoke out on it, but you also, we were reminded that you had struggled to yeah. enter Gaza yourself <laughs> on, a, on a previous visit. Yeah, I, we um, were supposed to go in and meet the UN in Gaza so I could get a chance to see it. Um, because clearly 2 million people, it's a part of the region. We have to take a look and do our due diligence. And uh, we were turned down by the Israeli government to go in and see it. They wouldn't give it to us in writing. They denied us 24 hours out and I was there. So I convinced most of the group to go take the bus there anyway. And we got there to the checkpoint and they're like, we already told you, you can't get in. And I'm like, yeah, but you didn't give it to us in writing. I always want to make sure you really meant it. So they're like, well, give us an hour. In the meantime, we watched a bunch of bulldozers go by to take out crops and things that they all too often do uh, on the other side of the border, which again, isn't advantageous to having a, a healthy place for people to live in Gaza. It, it's still, I, I met with the ambassador to Israel and I said, expressed my concern. What, why can't we, especially with as much money as we give Israel, uh, we should be allowed to go in and see. And you know, at first I was given the, oh, it's very, very violent. You wouldn't want to go. And I'm like, well, you know, I was in Colombia. I was detained by the FARC gorilla for five days. I'm okay with that. And I, I truly think he didn't expect that as an answer because he suddenly was uh, a little stammering and um, kind of uh, has said that, you know, he might allow us in. But when I watch them then get denied, that's wrong. I don't think any member of Congress should go as long as they're not allowed to, because this is above party. Uh, this is about uh, U.S. responsibility. If we're going to provide this kind of assistance to a country, friend, uh, friendly as it may be, uh, we still have a right to then see how the dollars are spent. And, you know, at the end of the day, if the Netanyahu government, which has been talking more about a one state solution, which is, I think, very different than most of us have always been around a two-state solution with appropriate land swaps. And, uh, you know, for them not to take on uh, that as an understanding, you know, tells me we have to have a different conversation about our relationship. And just to emphasize something you said quickly, you did say that no member of Congress should go yeah. And travel uh, until all members of Congress yes. can travel. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, there's traditional trips that go, especially in August, a lot of members wind up going to Israel with various organizations. But I have a real problem with the idea that, you know, we're going to throw some members to the side. They're not the same as the rest of us. No, all members of Congress are equal uh, on this, whether we vote for funding or not. And uh, I think it's wrong. In fact, just recently, I stood up and I was a little unhappy with some, quite honestly, folks on the left. I stood up for Ron Johnson. Of Wisconsin. Um, who should be able to travel to who Russia. Who should be able yeah. to go to Russia. And they yeah. turned him down. And I read a lot of the comments when I put that out. And they're like, why are you standing up for Ron Johnson? Oh, he's not going to do any good anyway. It doesn't matter. I mean, I agree. Ron Johnson doesn't do a lot of good. <laughs> That's a truism. Ron Johnson is the uh, <laughs> senator from Wisconsin. <laughs> that is a truism. But he also shouldn't be turned down or should Chris Murphy uh, from going into Russia. We'll be back after these messages. Join me on the Nation Cruise to the Western Caribbean this December 8th through the 15th, sailing from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with ports of call in the Bahamas, Jamaica, Grand Cayman, and Mexico. I'll be joined by Ijin Poo, Joan Walsh, Ben Jealous, Zephyr Teachout, and many other progressive thinkers, leaders, and heroes. Together, we'll explore our turbulent political landscape and debate what can be done about challenges facing the United States and the world. We'll do it all amid the natural beauty of the Western Caribbean. This trip will sell out fast. Secure your spot at www.nationcruise.com. I hope to see you on board. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm speaking with Congress member Mark Pocan. You referenced there being held by the FARC, and I think it's important to give a, a, some of your story here. Um, it, it's 
safe to say that you are one of the more widely traveled members of Congress. Especially prior to going into prior Congress. to going to yeah, Congress, yeah. I think yeah, you're yeah. right. Some senior members do have traveled a lot, and and you have tended to be a rather adventurous traveler. Yeah, well, you know, I'm uh, very fortunate that the Madison and Dane County community has always had uh, great connections with the international community on a lot of different issues, especially around um, economic and social justice. We've had a lot of sister cities, and sister cities often have been selected uh, to help raise uh, awareness of international issues. So Madison is a sister city uh, with a city in El Salvador during the time of the war. And uh, Dane County is a sister city of a community in Colombia uh, given all the violence they've had from paramilitaries and guerrillas and the drug dealers and all the rest. So I've gone on a lot of these sister city visits and I've believed in that cause. So I've been down to Columbia a number of times, twice on sister city visits. The last time though I went was really for fun, which um, is going to sound a little strange, but it was backpacking through the Darien Gap, which is a little stretch where the Pan American Highway um, between Panama and Columbia has never been finished. And uh, it's, you know, swampy 10 months of the year, a lot of poisonous snakes and things like that. But I wanted to someday do the Pan American Highway, and this was the best way to do the little part that gets difficult. So I was backpacking through it. I was the only North American. Everyone else was from Europe or New Zealand. And uh, when we were backpacking through, we woke up to machine gun fire and hand grenades. We had the paramilitary on the river, the gorillas on land, and we were in between under our beds um, at a, a Los Catillos National Park in Colombia. Uh, we were then detained for five days by the gorilla. But I've always read about it and learned about this in the region, and now to actually experience it, Honestly, John was very interesting. I, I, uh, but but it was great to be able to talk to the gorillas and find out why they're doing what they're doing and in seeing the path. And I still, uh, in fact, we're trying to put together a Codel in Colombia now on a number of levels, from both a, a trade perspective, the perspective of all the people leaving Venezuela coming through Colombia right now. Uh, there's a number of issues we're trying to to still address. But we've had this tradition here, and I've just been a part of that tradition. Even before that, you come out of a political family in a working class town, mm -hmm. Kenosha, Wisconsin, and your dad was a, a local official, ran for mayor. Yep. You were you got active in all that. Is that where you trace your politics? I mean, where where do you see? Yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I started doing doors with my dad when I was eight, right? So not that I knew what I was doing when I was eight, but I still knew that you would go and knock on people's doors and talk to them about what they care about, because that's what you, you learn to do. Went to my dad's council meetings when I was 14, because probably more than anything was a reason to hang out with your dad. Uh, but you get exposed to stuff like this. I started working on campaigns, um, you know, parades and knocking on doors, doing all those sort of things. Went to college, was active with the uh, at that time, the Young Democrats, now it's called the College Democrats, it's a slightly different name. But really, that was the activism. In fact, I remember, um, and I shouldn't say this because uh, I used to harass my member of Congress, uh, Les Aspen, um, because at the time they were talking about the MX missile system, and Les Aspen was a supporter of a rather strange idea of putting nuclear missiles on uh, rail cars and trucks and having them constantly moving around the U.S. so that the Ruskies and others couldn't find our nuclear missiles. And, you know, it just, on many levels, it was an incredibly stupid idea. And I was doing a paper on it, so I would often try to find the congressman and give him my views, of which I was often whisked away by staff, <laughs> which probably happens now. And I still know about on the it. other side <laughs> yes, there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and so at a certain point, quite young, you decided to get involved in politics. Now, there was an element of this that's interesting because you did so as a gay man mm -hmm. at a time when there are certainly people that came before you but there weren't a lot of openly gay elected officials. And you've always been very out front. 
How'd that happen? Yeah, you know, um, a couple of things. I mean, one, you know, I don't think I was really out uh, in college, but uh, you know, after I'd started my business, which was right after college, there was an incident where I left a gay bar, as many people do who are still kind of closeted, and uh, followed by a couple people, and I was beaten with a baseball bat. So uh, I had to get stitches, and you know that really kind of made me realize that like no one should have to do something like this simply for who they are. And I think then I got active with some LGBT organizations here in Dane County and in Madison, and really that was before I even ran for the county board. So that kind of got me a little bit involved in the community here, although I was already active in the Democratic Party. But also, Dane County has this incredibly uh, rich tradition when it comes to gay and lesbian folks uh, out in office. When I was on the county board at about, I was elected around 28, so around that time. um, Age 28. Age 28, yeah, yeah, age 28. There were more openly gay and lesbian elected officials in Dane County, Wisconsin, than the entire state of California. You wouldn't exactly expect it, especially most of the LGBT media is very coastal. We're flyover country here, right? It's nice, cute. They think they could pat us on the head. But as you know, 1982, we passed the first in the nation gay and lesbian civil rights bill at the time. didn't include transgender. But we passed it and signed by a Republican governor into law, Lee Sherman Dreyfus. I think it took nine more years for another state to do what Wisconsin did. But we've had this tradition of elected officials in this area, uh, and we still do. And, you know, the fact that Tammy Baldwin is our U.S. Senator, um, you know, I'm serving in Congress. I think it's the first district we've had a back-to-back openly uh, LGBT members of, of, of a federal office. But it's just really, I think, part of this community. And it's also part of you. It's part of it's yeah. something you've advocated for. The other interesting thing is, you have for a very long time been a union member, and that mm-hmm. makes you a rare player right. in the U.S. Congress. <laughs> yeah. There aren't a lot of. It's about a handful of us. <laughs> a handful of trade unionists yeah. is right. Activists in the painters' union. Mm-hmm. And one of the places where I think you came to national attention, even before you got to Congress, was in the battle against Scott Walker on taking away labor rights in yeah. 2011. And I remember an incident where the governor was about to arrive to give a speech. And I think you and your aides dropped a banner. I think actually it might have been the state of the state. So he had a lot of his guests coming and we uh, had produced at our union sign shop, uh, I think an eight by 12 uh, bright pink banner and said, this is your pink slip. Uh, Scott Walker and threw it out our window of the office at the Capitol. And uh, yeah, it got a little attention. Um, so that was was good. But, you know, you're right. And also this goes back to growing up in Kenosha, where, as you know, from coming from that part of the state, you know, 14,000 people out of 70,000 at one point made cars in Kenosha. For many years, when I was growing up, it was American Motors Company. Uh, later, it was uh, Renault and then Chrysler. And now no one does. But everyone had a good middle-class existence. You know, you had a good family supporting wage, pay your mortgage or rent. Uh, you had health insurance for your family. Uh, you could take a vacation, maybe have that one luxury of a snowmobile or camper. But that was what middle-class was. And uh, we've lost that in so many ways, whether it be people being listed as independent contractors, the attacks against unionized workers having a say in their workplace. And uh, so going to Congress, you know, I've really tried to pick that up. In fact, I've tried to find more ways to integrate labor directly, just like I do with the progressive groups, into what we do in Congress. And one of the things the Progressive Caucus Center has, which is our 501c3 entity for the Progressive Caucus, uh, we have a number of fellows, and we have one that just works full-time on labor issues, and that's uh, that 
person's housed in my office because that's where my passions are is making sure that when we talk about any issue, we should be thinking about what people actually talk about at their kitchen tables. And again, that's, can you afford your rent or, or mortgage? Do you have health insurance? Can you take a vacation? I mean, those are the core economic issues that real people talk about. And unless you talk about those issues, you're really not talking to voters who ultimately you need to make sure they're coming out to vote so that you can have people with good values in office. And you, one of the things that's interesting about you is you talk about all these things, your international travels and interests and passions, your, the fact that you are an, an out gay man and have been throughout your political career, the fact that you are passionate about labor. You end up in situations where you're bringing people from different camps, often within the left or often, you know, around it, together. And, and you're saying, we got to all do this thing together. You are married mm-hmm. to your longtime partner, Phil, mm-hmm. and you brought him right into the, the mix of things. And so you've got a situation, and I've seen it over the years, where people who have a lot of respect for you because of your foreign policy stand or because of your labor stand, come around and say, yeah, and you know what? I met, you know, I love Mark and Phil, right? Yeah. They, there's a, there's a, a sense of, of the role that a political leader can play in showing people how to work together. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's fourth grade stuff, right? You find, if you want to have friends, you find out what you have in common with people rather than what you don't have in common. It's really easy to find out what you don't have in common, but that doesn't foster the ability to communicate about things and convince people their issue is connected to another issue. And um, so I've always just operate at that level. My dad was kind of one of those people, I think, too, just a very congenial person everyone kind of liked. But my mom was pretty effective at getting things done. And I think I learned to be a little bit of a hybrid of the two. And even Republicans, I mean, I've been able to at times bring to the table on issues because Nancy Pelosi, if I put it in words, something that I was practicing without having this too, but she, she always tells us, you know, values unite, issues divide. And, you know, I think what you can find is you, when you find what you have in common with people, once you work off of that, then you've got a common place to, to try to convince them to join your cause or to on your issue. But it's really stuff that we learn when you're a kid, if you just keep doing that. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people forget that, you know, you can get too wrapped up in your issue and not necessarily look at someone else's perspective. I think even in negotiations, 100% of anything in a negotiation leaves the person taking nothing back to their side. That's never a great idea. Even if they get five or 10%, at least they have a little face to save. That's always served me well. And, um, you know, I, I think right now for me, one of my big things is we've been having a lot of the different progressive groups sit at the same table listening to each other because right now immigration, immigrants are the group that's under attack the most, I think, in this country. We need labor and environmentalists and others to all join that fight as immigrants then help us in our fight. And we've seen that, you know, throughout uh, we have to be able to all work together on issues that may not normally be seen as someone's unique issue, but we have to convince people why it is. And this is a pretty important lesson for the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. because even now we see folks in the Democratic Party arguing about, you know, how you would go at 2020, right? Yeah. And, you know, should we emphasize this set of issues? Should we go over here and, you know, try to talk to these people over here? And I think if I'm hearing you right, that your message is you really can talk to all of them. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, most people don't 
live and breathe politics, right? They want to live and breathe. <laughs> and that means they've got to be able to afford, you know, the, the necessities of life and they want their family. That's the most important thing to most people uh, to do well. So if we start from that as a center and we work out from there and the way your family does well is you have clean environments so that your children and your grandchildren continue to live well. And if everyone makes a good wage, we all do better. You know, the Paul Wellstone, uh, we all do better when we all do better. I love that saying. You, you can convince people and that's a value I think we can all unify around. And of course, if if healthcare could bankrupt you, then you can't live well. So we all have to have access to quality healthcare. And that's another truism I think we can put out there. And when you start to work in those circles, you're going to find people will agree with you on those things. Don't, and not get to lost on the dotting of the I's and crossing the T's of every policy proposal per se. Uh, although, of course, I think certain proposals will do a better job to get there. I think first we get the people on the values and then we could kind of move from there. And, and even human rights, you know, when I talk about foreign policy, you want to be treated fairly and justly. And why shouldn't everyone be treated fairly and justly? And, you know, separating kids at the border from their parents uh, is unjust. And most everyone agrees with that. So if you start at that level, I think you can convince people of a lot more. And it, if all else fails, you can also always show them a magic trick. That's true. That's true. <laughs> and, I, and I think often on this show, we talk to we talk about people's favorite music. Um, and I, you're a little bit of a deadhead. Yeah, a little bit of a deadhead, a little bit of the Beatles, but I listen to a lot of talk radio, yeah, which I know. is sad. It's, it's I very unhealthy. <laughs> yes. Um, but for you, one of the distinct things is you've been a magician. Yeah, since Forever. I was like eight. Again, yeah. since I was eight. Yeah, I used to check out books from the library in Kenosha, and uh, a nice, very nice librarian saw I was doing that and asked me to put on a magic show. So I was paid the uh, very steep price of two fifty cent McDonald's certificates to a do princely sum. Yes, yeah. yeah, I think I was probably around maybe 11 or 12 at that point. And then because I worked cheap, I think I did all the libraries in town and uh, kept doing that. But at 14, I won a junior magician contest in Wisconsin, went on to the Midwest, took like third place. I actually contemplated going to an alternative high school so I could just perform magic and uh, paid for a good chunk of college doing magic. So I took a little break when I was busy with the business and everything, came back to it in about 2010 when the Tea Party took over and uh, had a little more time on my hands from being co-chair of the finance committee. And now this is in the state legislature. Yeah, the state yeah, legislature. Yeah. And now, you know, I'm back to doing it. I do Magic Monday videos every Monday to try to talk about Washington with magic tricks. People that I used to admire as a kid had posters of like David Copperfield I'm now friends with because of, uh, <laughs> you know, doing magic. That's fun. But it's a good outlet. You know, it gives you something yeah, if you really enjoy an outside hobby, it's a good outside hobby for me. But also it's kind of fun. It's something you're sharing with people and you're giving people uh, something to laugh and smile about. And, you know, again, that goes, I think, with uh, being able to afford your mortgage and having health insurance and taking vacations is enjoying yourself. And that's good. You got a magic trick to get rid of Donald Trump? Uh, uh, trust me, if I would have, it would have been done. <laughs> Mark Pocan, Congressman from the 2nd District in Wisconsin. Thanks so much for joining us on Next Left. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Join us next week as we take the Next Left with North Dakota State Representative Ruth Buffalo. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia Steiner-Deboy. 
Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhuvel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. Recording help this week by Zoe Sullivan. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you.